Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. God's chosen people were, from the beginning, called to be a blessing to all the other people of the world. In God's first call to Abraham, he said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God gave to his people what we call special revelation, that is, scripture, which is so full of wisdom that it is more precious than gold. In Genesis 2, God goes to great lengths to enlighten us about how he went about creating man and woman so differently. As Christ followers, you and I have been chosen to be the stewards of a great treasure, truth about his design of male and female. At this cultural moment, this great truth is under assault. This series is entitled, Reconstructing Manhood and Womanhood in a Culture Where They Are Broken. This episode examines this great treasure so that we can better share it with those whose view of gender is fractured. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode Number 8 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. As we've seen in the other episodes, gender theory influencers throughout our culture are promoting a fractured view of personhood called the gender unicorn that distinguishes and separates five aspects of our human sexuality, sex assigned at birth, emotional romantic attraction, sexual attraction, gender identity, and gender roles. At the core of this deadly deception about sexual personhood is the right to autonomy the belief that every human must be free to choose and change all five. Unlike secularists, Bible-believing Christians see a fundamental unity in the original binary design of each sex. One's body, romantic desires, sexual attraction, gender identity, and gender role form a unified whole as either a man or a woman. In keeping with this fundamental design of our Creator, each is given opposite-sex attraction and assigned complementary roles in marriage, in the home, and in the church. Unfortunately, a whole group of Christians has abandoned God's revelation about gender roles. They are called egalitarians. The Gospel Coalition, which tries to be as inclusive as it can, rejects this teaching of egalitarianism as Tim Keller explained, because of the way it treats Paul's teaching as culturally determined and not God's Word. Since egalitarians have bent Scripture to deny gender roles in the church because they want to fit into an egalitarian Western culture, it should not surprise us that egalitarians have now abandoned the even clearer teaching of gender roles in the home. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Reconstructing manhood and womanhood in a culture where they are broken requires us to embrace God's created design of male and female to complete each other. The word that describes this view is complementarianism, from the word complementary. 
Adam and Eve are designed to complete what is lacking in the other and thus have different roles in the home and the church. In their book, The Grand Design, Owen Strachan and Gavin Peacock explain this term. Complementarity is the way in which men and women find happiness in owning their God-given identity and filling their God-given roles. Equal in dignity and worth, men and women share much in terms of Christian discipleship, but we are not the same. Unlike what egalitarianism would argue, men and women have different roles to play in life. We cannot agree with the idea that men and women alike lead in the home and church, as our egalitarian friends would say. The gospel of grace does not erase sexual difference and role distinctions. The gospel actually opens our eyes to savor divine design and our God-formed responsibilities. So let's take a close-up look at the masculine design. First, Adam is placed in the garden to cause it and its inhabitants to flourish. In Genesis 2.15, we're told that Adam is placed in the garden to work it. The Hebrew word for work it is avad, which is also translated cultivate. It means to make fruitful, to cause to flourish, to build, to shape. Adam is to make the garden, which includes its inhabitants, fruitful, to provide what the garden needs to thrive to help it and its inhabitants reach their full potential. This core concept of masculinity is spending our lives, our energy and time, to help others to develop to their fullest potential. We sacrifice our greatest assets, time, energy, and sweat, so that the garden, or civilization, as well as our wives and children, also in the garden, flourish physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Second observation about manhood is that Adam is placed into the garden to protect it. Genesis 2.15 continues, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew word is shamar, which also means to guard, watch over, and protect. Rick Phillips writes, this calling to keep rounds out the masculine mandate of the Bible. A man is not only to wield the plow, but also to bear the sword. Being God's deputy Lord in the garden, Adam was not only to make it fruitful, but to keep it safe. The ESV Study Bible points out, the man's role is to be not only a gardener, but also a guardian. As a priest, he is to maintain the sanctity of the garden. Adam was standing right next to Eve when she was tempted. He should have protected the garden temple and Eve from that temptation. The ESV study note continues, Adam's sin was both an act of conscious rebellion against God and a failure to carry out his divinely ordained responsibility to guard or keep both the garden and the woman. So may I ask, are you protecting your children and grandchildren from the voice of the evil one whispering the biblical view of gender roles is oppressive and old-fashioned? Egalitarianism is better? After all, Satan is an egalitarian. Third characteristic of manhood, a man is called to leave his home to pursue his wife. As Genesis 2 continues and God reveals his portrait of marriage, we see the universal principle that when it comes to the dance of man with woman, 
The man leads. He is the initiator. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man is the one who leaves his father and mother to find and pursue her. He asks her to dance. When we combine Genesis 2.24 with New Testament teaching for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, we see several parts to this leadership. First, the man takes the initiative to pursue the woman. Jesus leaves his place in heaven, comes into the world to sacrifice himself for his bride at the cross, and then draws her to himself with the cords of love. Jesus initiates. We respond. We belong to him because he pursued us. Second, the man leads by giving her his love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Greek word for love is agape, which describes sacrificial, loyal, fierce, undeterred devotion. This is the call to manhood, the sacrifice of ourselves for others. Third, the man leads in their partnership. His leadership role is made explicit by the fact that he names her. The biblical concept of marriage is interdependence, needing each other to be complete. Adam and Eve's roles, however, are not interchangeable. And fourth, men are called to inner strength. Wise parents understand that a boy is hardwired to want to prove he is strong. The biblical writers understood this characteristic of males also, repeatedly challenging them to be strong. In 1 Kings 2, verses 2 through 3, King David on his deathbed says to Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. In 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. At the close of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In 1 John 2, verse 14, the Apostle John praises the young men for their strength. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So let's look at God's design of femininity. I don't think it's accidental that God first tells us that male and female are fully equal in chapter 1 of Genesis, both fully bearing God's image and both commanded to be fruitful by having children and exercising dominion over creation. Then, in Genesis 2, he reveals Adam's and Eve's profound differences. First, we notice that Eve is created to be Adam's partner. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Adam was not created as a helper for Eve. Their roles are not interchangeable. Adam needed a helper, Ezer is the Hebrew word, to complete the commission that he had been given to be fruitful and multiply and rule over creation. It is tragic that when scholars translate Ezer, it comes out sounding like someone whose job is sweeping the floors or doing dishes, an unskilled, lowly laborer, a helper. 
No wonder Christian daughters are rejecting biblical gender roles. But this is not at all what this text is saying. Ezer really means powerful partner. It is frequently used in the Old Testament for God himself. For example, Psalm 33:20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. Men are created to be inadequate. We need women to cover our deficiencies, just as we sometimes lean on God for his help. Woman is designed perfectly for that task. Ezer does not at all imply inferiority, but rather competency. And women partner better than men. Second characteristic of womanhood, the essence of femininity is to be a giver of life, a nurturer. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, Genesis 3.20. Eve also sounds like Hebrew for life giver, and it resembles the word for living. Adam is given Eve as his partner not only to help him fulfill the cultural mandate, but to help him be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth with little image bearers of God. Owen Strachan and Gavin Peacock, in their book, The Grand Design, write, For their part, women are life givers. Women give physical life to humanity, a task so great and so significant that it cannot be quantified. God has highly esteemed women by making the survival of the human race hang on their care and nurture. Since creation matters so much to God, we might expect the woman's physical body to give clues to femininity. She is designed to receive her husband and surround him with love. Her breasts are made to nurture, and her life-giving womb nourishes and surrounds her developing child. These suggest that the call of femininity is to provide life-giving nurture. The love of a male calls him to help his family flourish by providing whatever they need from the garden. A woman's love, however, is giving herself, surrounding loved ones with her personal attention and care. That is nurture. Third, woman is designed to be a specialist at exercising dominion over her home. Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 are an astounding portion of the wisdom literature of the Bible. In almost every culture of the ancient Near East but Israel, women were demeaned and oppressed as sexual objects, the spoils of war, pretty much only. But this great wisdom book ends with a portrait of excellent womanhood. Who would have thought? The poem begins and ends declaring a woman's excellence. Let's look at a few verses to remind ourselves of what this text says. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Superbly gifted to manage her home. The fourth characteristic of womanhood is that they are called to inner beauty. 
Just as Scripture calls men to character strength, it calls women to character beauty. Peter's words are, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God designed males to initiate, to lead, and rule. Their gracious complement, females, are made to be joint heirs, full partners with them, but who welcome their husband's leadership. At the core of this womanly meekness is surrender to the Lord. Writing to her daughter on Christian womanhood, Elizabeth Elliot says, The fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman, for I have accepted God's idea of me. And my whole life is an offering back to him of all that I am and all that he wants me to be. Besides meekness, Peter calls Christian women to have a quiet spirit. She is called to inner peace, a restful confidence in God's sovereignty and goodness. Dr. Caulfield, one of my RTS Orlando biblical counseling professors, taught us, In counseling, men typically are passive. They need to get moving. In contrast, women are often restless, moving too much. They need to relax and trust God to work. Peter calls women to wisely devote themselves to a beauty that age can never take away and ultimately pleases their true lover, God himself, the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. So we've seen the portrait, we've seen the picture, we've seen the goal Godly manhood, godly womanhood. How do we inspire our children to pursue that goal? I can't help but think of Paul's words. Paul believed that fathers encourage. He said to the church at Thessalonica, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Here are some questions to ask yourself about your child or grandchild. The answers will provide a stockpile of verbal vitamins with which to strengthen your child's sexual self-esteem. First, affirming your son or grandson's masculinity. A. Adam is placed in the garden to cause it and its inhabitants to flourish. In what ways do you see your son being a servant who wants to help others prosper? Question two, how do you see him caring well for things and people entrusted to him? Question three, how do you see him wanting to build, shape, or order his surroundings? B, Adam is placed into the garden to protect it. Question one, in what ways does your son show courage? Question two, how do you see him trying to protect those around him? In what ways do you see him having a warrior's heart? How can you bring out his instinct to protect and defend those who can't care for themselves? C. A man is called to leave his home to pursue his wife. Question 1. How do you see your son taking initiative in general? 2. In what ways do you see him making sacrifices for someone else? What are some examples of your son being generous? Do you see ways your son is thoughtful of others' needs? And finally, how is he treating his sister and mother with respect? D. Men are called to inner strength. 
Question one, how do you see your son demonstrating inner strength? Number two, how have you seen your son show determination to be faithful to God? In what ways does he show determination to be obedient to God's word? How have you seen him demonstrating strong faith? In what ways do you see your son's loyalty to Jesus, his commander-in-chief? So let's turn to affirming our daughter's femininity. A, God reveals his purpose for Eve being a powerful partner. Question one, are you sure that the biblical teaching of complementarianism has not caused her in any way to feel inferior to males? If so, tear down that idea. Question two, what are your daughter's greatest strengths? Question three, what other traits do you see in your daughter that would enable her to be a great right-hand woman to someone in a leadership role? In what ways do you see your daughter helping others succeed? What are some examples of your daughter demonstrating loyalty to her friends or family members? B, the essence of femininity is to be a giver of life, a nurturer. Question one, in what ways do you see your daughter unselfishly caring for others? In what ways do you see her ability to nurture others coming out? How does she support other people? Give examples of ways you've seen her encourage others. C, a virtuous woman is a specialist at exercising dominion over her home. You might want to read over the portrait of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Ask yourself what these virtuous traits look like in the 21st century. Then put a star next to the attributes that describe your daughter and a double star next to those that are her strongest. Then find an opportunity to praise her for these virtues. As I've mentioned many times in my podcast, we ought to also be doing that as husbands with the virtues of our wives. Back to affirming our daughter's or granddaughter's femininity. D, she is called to inner beauty. Question one, in what ways do you see your daughter responding to God the way Mary, the mother of Jesus, did? Saying, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. Question two, have you seen her quietly trust the Lord with some hard things? Three, in what ways have you seen your daughter overcome worry by her faith? What are some of your daughter's other character traits that make her beautiful on the inside? Well, confusing destructive messages about gender from the social media find their way into our children's souls every day, tearing down healthy sexual self-understanding and esteem. They need that damaged foundation rebuilt with words from you that motivate them toward confident, godly manhood or womanhood. To summarize this third episode in our series, Reconstructing Manhood and Womanhood in a Culture Where They're Broken, we began by noting that Christ followers today as God's covenant people are chosen by God to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Jesus called that process of blessing the world being light that overpowers sin's darkness and salt that retards sin's decay. Some of the light that we possess that God has gone to extraordinary lengths to give to us 
is an understanding of how differently he designed male and female to be in bearing his image and in completing what is lacking in the other. The gender unicorn view of personhood and Western egalitarianism reject the biblical teaching of gender differences and gender roles in the home and church. As we studied the design of manhood, we saw first that Adam is putting the garden to work it, causing the garden and the other humans in it to flourish. Second, that Adam was put in the garden to protect it and its inhabitants. Third, we noted that in the dance with woman, men follow the example of Jesus, who took the initiative to pursue us. Like Jesus, the man leads by loving his wife and family. Men's leadership role is assigned, not earned. And although women are equal to men in every way, Adam's role of leading and Eve's role of assisting are not interchangeable. Fourth, we saw that the biblical writers motivated males by calling them to inner strength. In the design of womanhood, we saw first that it is wise to begin a discussion of womanhood in Genesis 1, where God says emphatically that she is equal to a man. Second, that Eve was perfectly designed to be a powerful partner to cover Adam's deficiencies. Third, that Eve is the giver of life with an incredible ability to nurture. Fourth, that she is designed to be a specialist at exercising dominion over her home. We see that, of course, in Proverbs 31. And fifth, that she is called to the inner beauty of godly character. We then examine some questions that might be used to affirm masculinity in our sons and grandsons and femininity in our daughters and granddaughters. For further prayerful thought, number one, egalitarians believe that man and woman being equal means that it is unfair for men only to lead their homes and churches. How does God's description in Genesis 1 and 2 of his creation design of male and female refute egalitarianism, let alone the New Testament teaching? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, as we complete our series, Reconstructing Manhood and Womanhood in a Culture Where They're Broken, we will take a very practical look at how we can winsomely speak into our culture persuasively to refute gender theory and promote the truth that gender is binary. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.